We're so thankful that you're here to join us uh, for um, uh, the Lord's Day uh, here at Emmanuel Bible Church. And today is Communion Sunday. Uh, That means that we'll gather around uh, the Lord's table in remembrance of Him. And that will be at the conclusion of our time around the Scriptures. And uh, which also means that I have a little less time than I usually have on Sunday morning. So we should get to that fairly quickly. If you turn to uh, the book of Job, Job chapter 6 and 7 will be our text this morning. And yes, we're covering two chapters, even though it's uh, Communion Sunday, because that's what we kind of like to do. We have been studying um, in the book of Job uh, just uh, this marvelous story of Job, the godly man, the godly sufferer. And as we have, uh, as we have said repeatedly, almost all of us are familiar with uh, the details of Job's suffering. But what we are finding along the process of the rest of the book of Job, between the first two chapters and the last chapter, is a series of dialogue and statements and songs and and poetry that just express things like complaint and lament. And this is Job in his first response to his friends. And I say to his friends, even though Eliphaz the oldest and the senior of the three friends, is the only one that has spoken so far, Job's response will be to all of the above, and then, and then, secondly, his response will be to God in prayer. A prayer of lament, nonetheless, but a prayer. And as we kind of look to this, that, that's really our, our primary uh, two breakdowns here, is just a sharp response to his friends, in chapter 6, and then a candid lament to his God in chapter 7. But as we think about everything that Job has suffered, I mean, what we start to wonder about is how far the suffering of the righteous can go. We think this naturally because, um, you know, one of the first verses that comes to mind when I think of us as as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, and the idea of trial, temptation, or suffering, I think of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Maybe your mind goes there as well. That there's no temptation, right, that is, that is overtaking us, except that it is common to man. In other words, someone has suffered that same temptation, trial, difficulty before. And it says explicitly that God is faithful and will not Right? Let you be tempted beyond your ability to endure. But instead, he will provide you a way of escape that you will be able to make it through. That's a significant promise. And that's one that we should cling to. Because it is true that God gives only what we can handle. And I'll be honest with you, I praise the Lord that I probably cannot handle what Job has handled. It is one thing that you lose, right, all your earthly blessings in terms of your family, in terms of your ability, your, your home, uh, your ability to, to, to provide for your family or for yourself, shelter, all of those things. That, that's hard. But you add on top of that just debilitating disease so that, that you can find no comfort. There is no, there is no moment where you can sleep or rest or forget about your pains. It is this constant cycle of remembrance of difficulty. That is Job's condition. And it is because Job is uniquely qualified. He is a uniquely all right, God-given 
um, faithful man with tremendous endurance for the things of the Lord that he has tested this severely. I, I, I do not think I have that sort of faith in me. Um, but Job does. But lest you think that he is just impenetrable, that Job is a rock. In fact, he will say himself, he's not made of bronze. In his lament, he's going to be very honest and raw and open about how painful this is. But what you love about Job and what we cherish about his godliness is that no matter how deep the pain and the expression of that pain, how raw um, his, his desire to lament um, for all that is lost and all the pain that he is enduring, with all of that in sight, he never forgets who God is. Nor does he doubt that it is still in God's hands. That's the remarkable thing that we'll see. And we'll see that in Job's response to his friends and in his lament before his God. But let's pray, and, uh, and we will begin in our, in our, um, on our two chapters in the book of Job. Heavenly Father, we thank you on this Lord's Day when we're gathered to recognize um, the Lord's death, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection for the sake of our forgiveness, that we might be righteous in your eyes, not because of our own righteousness, not even because we deserve it or because we have done something that is better than others, but only and exclusively because Christ suffered for us. Lord, it's in the shadow of the cross that we look at the book of Job. Lord, you've intended this book um, from before anything was known about the name Jesus of Nazareth so that we might see what um, the righteous suffering, the most extreme of righteous suffering, might look like. And for all that Job went through, we know that your son endured yet more, and that he endured that for our sins, so that we would not have to experience that same suffering. Lord, as we look to the Scriptures now, and we explore the, the mind, the heart, the emotions of Job, we pray that you'd give us eager hearts to know, to appreciate, to understand, and then to be like Job, to see underneath it all that God is still God and still worthy of not just worship, but of allegiance, of submission, and great loyalty. So we pray for your enablement as we look to your scriptures this morning and pray that you would bless our time in the Word, our time in the word um, as we gather again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I just want to say this as we begin in, uh, in talking about Job's response to his friends. The thing that comes out in Eliphaz's, um, um, his, uh, his statements, his response to Job. Remember chapter 3, Job had kind of expressed this longing to die, that he is done with this. This is too difficult, right? And then Eliphaz steps into that space. And more kindly than his other friends, he begins to speak about how this, this world is a closed theological system. Remember we said that? That there's a, there's a cause and effect theology. That God always punishes the wicked and God always blesses the righteous. True statements that, right? That is clear in scripture. God does not, as a holy God, he does not allow anything that is sinful or wicked to escape. He pays and he demands payment in full. 
And it's a true statement that to the righteous, to those that God has blessed, he will bless in abundance. The problem is, if you think that it is a closed, closed system for this life alone, we see examples of that. We see the psalmist in his laments cry out to that. We see that over and over throughout the scriptures and the prophets. Whenever there is great difficulty and tribulation on God's people, there is a clear call to say, Lord, why is this happening? And an understanding that in this life, sometimes the wicked get away with their wickedness. And sometimes the righteous suffer, though they don't deserve it. This is the reality of this broken world. And there is a cause and effect theology. It's true. But only if you factor in eternity. God always punishes the wicked. In eternity. God always blesses the righteous. Unto eternal life. If we, need, if we need God to react and to act only in this life to correct the wrongs here or to, to pay um, uh, blessing for his righteousness here, if, if we need God to be that black and white in this life, we'll find ourselves over and over disappointed. And that's, I think, the place that we start because that's where Eliphaz and his friends are going to go sideways. A true statement, a true theological doctrine that God always punishes the wicked and always, right, always rewards the righteous, but not necessarily in this life. And because they think it must be in this life, it will lead Eliphaz to wonder if there's something that Job is hiding. It will lead Bildad to say explicitly that you have to repent of whatever it is that has caused God to do this to you. And then it'll lead Zophar to remind Job that the fires of hell are, are very hot and you need to repent before it's too late. What an interesting kind of dialogue that is taking place. And so this is Job's uh, first response to the first and the oldest and in a lot of ways his kindest of friends. And it is a sharp response. And it's a response not just to Eliphaz but to all his friends. So we begin in chapter 6 starting in verses 1 through 7. It's his, uh, an expression of his vexation at life. And he explains vexation and struggle. Look at verses 1 through, th 1 through 3. Then Job answered and said, Oh, that my vexation were weighed and all my calamity laid in the balances. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash. See that last phrase, therefore my words have been rash, is an explanation of why he has spoken so wildly. That's what that word means. It means that Job recognizes he is saying stuff like, I wish I were never born. I wish God never created me or that I was born a stillborn and I went immediately to the grave. In saying stuff like that, he recognizes there's a wildness to it, a rawness to it. And he's saying, but why are my words so rash? And he's saying, because my, vex my vexation is great. Vexation expresses um, emotional turmoil that bleeds out in an outburst, a verbal outburst. It is the kind of thing that explains Hannah, uh, if you guys remember 1 Samuel 1. Um, her rival was making fun of her, right? Well, yet again, because she is without child. 
And in her vexation and anxiety, she is pleading her case before the Lord at the steps of the temple. And then the high priest thinks she's drunk. Because she's saying crazy stuff, maybe. Or maybe she's just like sobbing in the midst of what she... She is falling apart. And that, that's the idea of vexation, right? Job is saying, if you took my vexation, the emotional weight of what I am experiencing and my crying out, and you put it on the scale on this side, along with all of my calamity, and you laid it in the balances, then it would be far heavier than the sand of the sea. You could weigh the sand and the ocean, and my vexation and calamity is heavier than that. That's why my words are so wild. Because I am struggling in this vexation and in the weight of the turmoil that has fallen upon me. But it's not just the vexation at what life has given me. There's a resignation of hope. Right? Look at verses uh, 8. Verses 8 through 13. Oh, that I might have my request that God would fulfill. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I totally skipped verses. Uh, sorry, I skipped verses 4 through 7. Go back. Rewind. What, 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 right? Because you need to hear this part too. Part of his vexation in his life is not just that his emotional weight of everything that's happened, but look at verse 4. Verse 4 is uh, particularly significant he says for the arrows of the almighty are in me and my spirit drinks their poison the terrors of god are arrayed against me see it's not just my circumstance that that is causing this this tremendous emotional trial he is saying it is because he feels like god himself is opposing him and he is you you notice this that job's commitment to God's sovereignty is so absolute that, that these circumstances are not just random. It's not just the result of a broken world. He knows this is God. That the Almighty has His hand in anything and everything that comes His way. Job had already said that in chapter 1. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He recognizes God's sovereignty. In fact, let me say this. Every single one of his friends recognize God's absolute sovereignty that he gives. And that's why to them, when they can't understand why this happened to Job, in their closed system, it must be that you're in sin and you're not telling us the truth. For Job, it's, it's, I'm not in sin. And I, this is, there's nothing that I've done that, is, that, is, uh, that re- requires God to respond in this way to my life. So I am innocent. He's not saying he's sinless. He's saying he's innocent of anything that deserves this. And he's not sure what is going on. But he knows that God is the one behind it. That's how he expresses it. It's God's arrows, the arrows of the Almighty that have struck him and the poisoned arrow is going through his system. He is dying because God is killing him and that the terrors of God are arrayed against him, meaning the power of God for wrath seems to be standing in opposition across the battlefield from him. So verses 5 through 7 He says, does the wild donkey bray when he has grass or the ox low over his fodder? Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? My appetite refuses to touch them. They are as food that is loathsome to me. He uses two illustrations, one of animals. And he says, uh, I I know we're we're not particularly, um, you know, 
um, farm and agricultural specialist here, right? Um, so let me help you with that because I, I have a little expertise in this. Yeah, you laugh and you should. I, I'm a city boy. I have no expertise in this. But apparently a donkey brays. You know what that is? And yee-haw, that's his bray. And an ox lows. Do you know what that is? That's not, you know, he doesn't get down. He, he, he makes that noise. That's an ox lowing. And the point is, does the donkey bray, or the ox low, unless, right, if everything is satisfying, if, if he is being fed, right? That's what fodder is. That's what grass is. When they're eating well, they do not make noise or cry out. Here's his point. He's saying, I'm like that. I'm crying out. Because I'm not getting what I receive. Now, who is he talking about? He could be talking about the Lord, but I think more likely he's talking about the, the, the encouragement or the discouragement that is coming from the words of his friends. I say that because look at verse 6. The second illustration is an illustration of slime. It says, can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? He's saying there, if there's something that does not taste good, right? There's an interesting thing, and I, I, I bet we'll find it in many languages. I don't know a lot of Korean, but uh, the word in Korean for, you know, something that doesn't taste good literally means it has no flavor, it has no taste. Isn't that interesting? And I, I bet if we, if we canvas many languages, that would be the case. And this is the idea here. Like, it, it needs salt because it is tasteless. It needs flavor because it has none. And then he says in the second part, or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? And I'll be honest, no Old Testament scholar is convinced of exactly what that juice of mallow is. But a lot of the ancients would translate it in some form of slime juice. Some kind of weird, icky, hard to put down, gelatinous kind of thing that you're trying to eat. And his whole point is, man, like, like your arguments right, are repulsive. They're like drinking slime. And he says, verse 7, my appetite refuses to touch them. They're, few, they're like food that is loathsome to me. I, I can't take this. Your words are making me sick. This is his vexation at his life and his current circumstance of his not so helpful comforters. Their words, they, they don't feed. Their words don't comfort. The words, and he seems to sense where it's going will be very critical of his life very soon. I imagine these guys are friends, and so Joe probably knows them well, and they kind of lean towards that side. Like, hey, did you hear about, you know, Hezekiah? Yeah, something bad happened to him. Hmm? You wonder why, right? Like, like he probably has had these kind of conversations and suspects that this is where this entire dialogue is going, so he expresses his vexation at life and at them and how... Their response is not helpful at all. So then we get to verses 8 through 13. He speaks about his resignation of hope. Verse 8. He says, Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me and that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. See, I'm saying he resigns hope, meaning that his desire would be that God would just crush him and cut him off. 
It, it is, again, God and his sovereignty that has right to do that. And, and where Eliphaz has been encouraging him to find his hope in his piety and integrity, chapter 4, verse 6. He is saying, man, you know, like you were a good man. You can be a good man again. You find your piety, you know, your, your, your fear of God, your integrity. You do what is right again then it'll be okay. You'll be okay. That's where you should place your hope. Job is seeing the entire thing upside down. He's seeing that the world is not dependent upon your piety and integrity. That guarantees nothing. It is only God who is in control. And when he looks at a circumstance, he is saying, I would rather that God would just end me. That would be my request. That was chapter 3. That would be my hope. That God would just crush me, that he would cut me down, that it would be done. Can I say that throughout Job's lament, in everything that he says about his desire to be crushed, for his life to be snuffed out, that he had never been born. Do you realize two things? One, that suicide is never considered. I, I want us to drink this in because it's significant. Because whatever else Job believes, he believes that it is the Lord's to give and the Lord's to take, right? That was Job 121. Blessed be the name of the Lord. His life is God's to give and life to take. It is his circumstances, his family, his blessings are God's to give and to take. His health is God's to give and to take. In other words, whatever else Job believes, he believes God is real and that he doesn't, God doesn't owe Job anything. He can't take his life. He doesn't consider taking his life because that's not his ultimately to take or to give. It's the Lord's. He believes in the absolute lordship of his God. So much so that that even if he wishes he could die, he would never raise his own hand to kill himself because that would be sin against the God who has the right to give and the right to take. His worship of the Lord never fades, even in the midst of his trial and lament. He's going to express some some raw emotions about how he's feeling. He is literally saying that I would choose to die, but that's not like other godly men in Scripture. Moses in Numbers 11 said, if this is the way it's going to be, Lord, just kill me. Elijah says, hey, Lord, I've had enough. Let's just, let's just end this. But with all the godly men, the thing that you recognize is that they don't think of taking their own lives because it's not theirs. They don't self-define. They are not their own entity apart from the living God. It is God who has the right to give and to bless, and it's God's who has the right to crush or to cut off. And what, what interesting kind of vocabulary, right? When we think about all of the scriptures. Because when we get to Isaiah 53.10, the suffering servant to come, that's exactly what God is pleased to do. He is pleased to crush him. The same terminology, the same way that Job expressed it, I wish you would crush me. And then we look forward, right? Job, the righteous sufferer. And we look at the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and God would, and he is pleased to crush his son. And we know that that crushing of his son is the means by which we are forgiven of our sins. So see, you see this, this interesting kind of underlying gospel um, hope that, that, that will not be extinguished even in the midst of his lament. 
He is not so wild as to lose all of his theology. He knows exactly who he is and who God is and that God is the one that has absolute lordship of everything that is in. He would wish that God would take his life, but even that is up to the Lord, not to him. But he could say that because that's how he's feeling. Verse 10. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. I like that last phrase in verse 10. I have not denied the words of the Holy One. You see what he is saying is, is he cannot deny who God is. Right? Whatever God has said, it is true. Whatever God has ordained, it will be. Who God is, God is. And I will not deny that. And so his whole point is that, man, I, 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 would, I would take more pain if that be necessary. But this would be my comfort that give me more pain than cut me off. Let me be done and preserve this faith in who God is. Christopher Ashe in his uh, commentary says this. If God takes his life soon, he says that he will have comfort. And he says, how so? says he would die not having cursed God. He would have stayed faithful to God right to the point of death itself. He would die knowing that he had maintained his spiritual integrity like a prisoner of war undergoing torture. He fears the moment that he might break. He longs to die without betraying his faith in the goodness and in the word of God. Verses 11 through 13 kind of bring that home. He says, what is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should be patient? Is my strength the strength of stones? Or is my flesh bronze? Have I, any, have, have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? His point in verses 11 through 13, kind of, uh, uh, kind of on the tails of verse 10, is to say that this is why my hope is gone. I, I, I'm hanging on to who God is. I have not denied the words of the Holy One, but my strength isn't endless. What's my strength that I should keep on enduring? What, what is my end that I should be patient? My strength isn't stone. My flesh isn't bronze. I'm not a machine. Is there any help? All my resources are gone. I'm at my wit's end, is what he's trying to say. He's reached this point of losing hope, not because God is not real, but because he knows that he cannot continue. And he fears that he might give up that which is the only thing that still matters, his hope and faith in a God that is in absolute control. And so the rest of chapter 16 is an expression of his disappointment with his friends. Verse 14 kind of, kind of gives us, I think, the, the launching point for the rest of chapter 6. It says, He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. And that's why I'm saying it's a sharp response to his friends. Job is going to let them have it a little bit because he's trying to let them know that there's been a failure of friendship. He says, he withholds kindness. And the word that is in our Hebrew is hesed. Remember, it's that covenant-keeping love. It implies both a faithfulness, a steadfastness, a reliability with love and graciousness and kindness and mercy. 
It is those things that are combined that is often spoken of in our Old Testament of God and how he expresses his loving kindness to us. He's trying to say that one, he loves us, that he's kind to us, and that he never breaks his promises. So it is, it is a hesed kind of faithfulness that his friends have given up. If you withhold that, that kind of hesed, that almost covenant faithfulness of loyalty and grace from a friend, he says, you're forsaking the fear of the Almighty. You, you are losing your religion. It's like the same as dishonoring your God. It shows an impiety of life. So that's where he launches into his disappointment with his friends. If you are withholding loving kindness from your friend, it's like you have abandoned your fear of God, your religious conviction of who God is. And then he says in verse 15, my brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrent streams that pass away, which are dark with ice and where the snow hides itself. And when they melt, they disappear. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. He's talking about dried wadis. A wadi? A wadi, right? A wadi is a, is a riverbed. Um, and I've I, I, not been to Israel, so I can't say that I know for sure, but my understanding is that the terrain in Israel, right, is a lot like Southern California. So you guys will appreciate this, right? There are times when there's torrential rains and flooding and then there are along our hillsides like these grooves that look like riverbeds right because that's where the water flows but as soon as it stops raining and a few days later in our valley heat right it's just dried up it looks like water should be flowing there but it's not there there's this little waterfall right if you're driving on the 118 towards my house towards Simi Valley and you look towards the north amongst the crags of the rocks if it has been raining uh, torrentially right, for a while, then you look up and there's this, this waterfall that falls about like, I don't know, maybe like 40, 50 feet. It's kind of cool. It's small, but you can only see it really quickly like that and you shouldn't stare because you're driving on the freeway, right? But you could see it and I'll point it out to the kids when, when that's there. That hasn't been there for a while, but most of the year, and in fact, most years, you look up there and there's nothing, right? Because it just dries up. That, this is what we're talking about. Dry riverbeds, right? Dry wadis. And he's saying, brothers, you guys are like that. You are, you are useless. You are futile. It, wadis come with kind of a, a promise of life-giving refreshment. And instead, you have brought life-sapping discouragement. That's what he's trying to say, right? Brothers, a, a treacherous wadi that is dried up, the, the ice is melted, the snow is gone, it melted, and instead of kind of continuing to pour out water, it is hot, they're vanished, it disappears. And then he goes on to further illustrate this in verses 18 and following. The caravans turn aside from their course. They go up into the waste and perish. Caravans from Tema look. The travelers of Sheba hope. What are they looking and hoping for? For water. It's a parable, and he's saying that imagine that there's caravans traveling through the desert, and they're looking Right? They're looking for water, for refreshment. They need some life. And they remember there's a riverbed that's a ways off. And so they, they, they caravan there. They look for it. The, the travelers to Sheba, they hope for it. Then verse 20, and then they are ashamed because they were confident. They could have sworn there was water at that riverbed. They came there and are disappointed. 
Verse 21, For you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. When he says you have become nothing, he means that term that means it has become vanity, uselessness, or it's, it's all futile. And now you see my calamity and you're afraid. He accuses them of cowardice. And I don't think cowardice, like, you know, they, they, they don't want to touch him. They don't want to be near him. They're, they've been sitting with him for, for at least a week. I think he means it in the sense that, that they can't go beyond their own expectations of what must be. Instead of finding comfort, right, instead of wanting to comfort their friend, they have decided that there's something wrong with you, Job. There's something you need to fix, right? And so he's saying, I had high hopes at seeing your arrival, but your counsel, your lack of compassion, are like dried up wadis. And whereas I might have put my hope in you when you arrived to sit with me, it's like, it's like a caravan looking for water and finding that wadi all dried up and losing that hope, all right? That's what it feels like. And then he rebukes them for their thoughtless words, starting verse 22. He says, listen, have I said, make me a gift or from your wealth offer a bribe for me? Or deliver me from, my, from the adversary's hand? Or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless? He's saying, listen, has there ever been a point where I have asked upon your graciousness for me? Have I been a needy friend? Have I demanded of you certain things? Is that, is that me? Right? If I said, hey, can I borrow a buck? Can I do this? Can I do Have I looked for gifts or bribes or deliverance or rescue from you? And he's saying, I- I'm not that guy. All he has wanted from them is covenant faithfulness, loyalty, mercy, and friendship. He says, I- I've never demanded anything of you. So verse 24, so then teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand uh, how I have gone astray. How forceful are upright words, but what does reproof from you reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? He says, listen, teach me. Give me understanding. If, I have, if I've gone astray, if I've sinned inadvertently or by omission, then explain that to me. Don't imply that. Don't suggest that that's possible. If you can put your finger on it, put your finger on it. Because Job's whole point and much of what he's going to say is, I can't seem to put my finger on it. There's nothing specific that I could think is the reason why God has done all this to me. But I know it's God that is doing this to me. So he says, teach me if I've gone astray. Correct my error. He says, if, uh, he, he's welcoming true words. How forceful is straight talk is what he's saying. And if you speak rightly to me, if you speak truth to me, that could be helpful. Even if I'm a despairing man whose words are just wind. That's an interesting thing because Eliphaz has said that. Bildad would say that in chapter 8, verse 2. And Eliphaz will repeat that in chapter 15, verse verse 2, that his knowledge, his wisdom, his, his statements are all just wind. His whole point is that you are callous friends. So callous, he says in verse 27, you would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. He's saying you would treat a human being, right? Like they're just, they're just to be one in sport or in gambling. And you would look for a bargain, see if you can get a discount, right? If you can purchase off your friend. That's how he feels. He feels like they have disappointed him in, in any kind of comfort that they should have brought. So then here is his plea in verse 28 through 30. But now be pleased 
to look at me, for I not lie to your face. There's something particularly tender about that moment where Job is saying, dude, dude, look me in the eyes. He's talking to two, three friends that are probably pretty close friends. They've traveled a great distance, right? They've spent, you know, day and night, possibly not even eating, right? Sitting by, beside him in this garbage heap dump, right? Outside the city where no one else is willing to come. They have sat with him. They care for him. They have had discussions in the past. And so even as they come and they're poor comforters, they are still there and present. And Job is saying in this moment, look at, please, just look me in the face. I'm not lying to you, right? Look me in the face. He says, please turn and let no injustice be done. Turn now. My vindication is at stake. Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? He's saying, look, I do not know. Don't accuse me of something that I have no idea of. Why is this happening? I cannot explain. See, Eliphaz's argument is that God operates on a very strict law of retribution. You do bad things, God makes bad things happen. You do good things, God gives good things to you. And so his whole point is, is Job, I don't know what it is, but it must be pretty bad, and you must have done something to a degree that demanded all of this. And Job's whole point is, look me in the eyes and know the truth. I can't put my finger on it. I have no idea what this is. So turn, repent, change your mind. And don't cast injustice upon me. My vindication is at stake. Am I a sinner that deserves all this that has happened? Or am I God's child and just can't seem to understand this? I like what one, one um, scholar says, human philosophy and all human religion impose upon the human condition a framework of simple cause and effect, in which there can be no such thing as suffering that simply and necessarily brings glory to God because it expresses the obedience of the believing heart that bows down to God simply because he is God. That's too long of a sentence, I know. And you probably lost interest halfway through. But his point is this. Every human philosophy and human-created wisdom has this kind of framework of cause and effect. Right? And when it comes to suffering, they don't have a category for saying that this suffering can bring God glory. Do you remember when the disciples see a man born blind? And they say to Jesus, Lord, whose sin is this? This guy's sin? Right? Or his mom and dad's sin? That he is born blind? And Jesus says, it's not either of their sins. God doesn't deal, right, in that kind of justice, like, oh, their dad's, the dad be like, you know, staring, giving like stink eye to neighbors. His son would be blind. God doesn't deal with people that way. He says it's for the glory of the Lord. And I think part of it is that because Jesus intended to heal him of his blindness, but not exclusive. That's not the entire idea of the glory of the Lord. It's the glory of the Lord that, that sometimes suffering reminds us that there must be something better. That suffering is necessary. In fact, it is, it is ultimately the only test of the genuine heart of the fear of the Lord. I mean, how else can we be tested out in an absolute sense of whether or not we'll follow God no matter what is exactly the trial that Job is enduring. This all began because Satan claimed that Job only worships you because you, you hedge him in with blessings. 
because you give him good health. Take away all of that mess and then let's see him curse you. God is the only person in heaven or on earth that knows absolutely that Job will not curse him. Job is not even certain. That's why he's saying, Lord, just take my life. All right? I don't want to take this chance. His friends are uncertain. In fact, they are certain that he's probably done something that is deserving of this. Maybe he has cursed God. His wife is uncertain, and she thinks maybe it's better for you to just curse God and die. Right? Satan was maybe fairly certain. He's probably smart enough to know that God's right, but that doesn't change anything, right? And when we walk through all of that, what we find is suffering is an essential component of God and his work in a broken world. You say, man, that that doesn't sound right. Well, it doesn't sound like the prosperity gospel, that's for sure. But it sounds like the biblical gospel. Because if you think about it, whatever else Job does... He pictures for us a view of suffering that is compatible with an absolutely sovereign God who is an absolutely loving God. And this perspective will meet us at the cross. Because as much as Job has suffered, our Savior suffered more. And he suffered to an infinite degree so that God's glory would be revealed in rescuing sinners from their sin. I'm not saying that that we should just look at Job and the first thing we should think about is is Jesus and his suffering. But I I think it is is God saying that there is a theology of suffering that is is in this life. And Job and the way that he reacts, we should be understanding, compassionate, and appreciative of all that he goes through and how he's trying to hang on to who God is despite all of this. Because when we look forward to the person the suffering servant, the son of God, he suffers that and more, but he does that perfectly so that he is sympathetic with our sufferings, so that he is kind to us, so that he can rescue us from our sins. Chapter 7, and don't worry, this is going to go a little bit faster. Wink, wink. Right. It's a candid lament to his God. So he turns from friends to now to the Lord. And it's just a candid, kind of, uh, kind of raw expression of his lament to his God. It's a prayer. And one thing that, that many of uh, these Old Testament scholars point out that I think is, is excellently true and, and easy to miss is that Job's friends throughout the entirety of the book, they constantly talk about God about his sovereignty, about his righteousness, about his holiness, how he's different, he's greater. They talk about God endlessly. Job is the only one that talks to God. He does talk about God too. But he turns and laments. He speaks. He prays. He openly questions and says stuff that we might think is a little bit rash. But he speaks to God. And he speaks to God. And he begins by speaking to God in his candid lament with, um, with an expression that his harsh life is coming to its end. It's shortened in verses 1 through 6. Has not man a hard service on earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired hand? Hard service is, constr- is usually constricted service. 
It's like you're drafted or you're forced to join the military. And then the hired hand is the person that is usually so poor that he sells himself into an indentured servanthood or slavery in order to provide for himself or his family. And he's saying, has not the man, a man a harsh servant? It's like he's been conscripted or he has, he has to pay off debts. It's a tough life. And then verse 2, like a slave who longs for the shadow. He's working so hard that he would like a little shade or maybe the shadows of the evening. He's looking for the day to end. And like a hired hand who looks for his wages, again, as the day ends and he gets paid his wages, what he deserves. He says, so I am allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are portioned to me. His wages and his, shame, and his, and his, his shadow, his shade, is emptiness and misery. That's what he's saying. It's a harsh life. And then verse 4, he says, And when I lie down, I say, When shall I arise? But the night is long, and I am full of tossing till the dawn. Some of you guys might struggle with insomnia, and this is what he's talking about. He's saying, I lie down, and immediately I'm saying, When am I getting up? Right? Like, it's not like I lie down. And so you guys usually lie down. I usually lie down. And after a while, we fall asleep. And the next thing you know, you're like waking up to your alarm. You're right, a little confused about what day of the week, uh, day of the week it is, right? And you kind of, at least you got a little bit of rest. There was respite. There was a moment where you forgot about your troubles. And he's saying, I lie down. And all I can think about is, when am I getting up again? The night is long. And I'm full of tossing till the dawn. You guys understand that, right? Verse 5, my flesh is clothed with worms and dirt and my skin hardens and breaks out afresh. This is graphic and I think literal. Remember he is covered in boils from head to toe to actually soles of his feet? So I, I think these, these boils, whatever they are, they have some maggots or something in them. I know it's disgusting, right? But it's like he's covered in worms and dirt. And then his skin hardens. And then when it says breaks out afresh, it probably means that those boils break open, right? And then it restarts the whole process. It is disgusting and terrible. And he's talking about his physical plight. That this is how hard it, it is for him. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. I think the equivalent today would be that, that you know, it's faster than our sewing machine does the little jigga, 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 right? And, and kind of puts the, the, the threads into the fabric. It's like, it's like that quickly my days are ending. And the curiosity that many have pointed out is in verse 4 he says the nights are long. But in verse 6 he says the days are swift. And I think it's intentional. I think part of it is there's some confusion about it, but he's saying that the nights, which should, bring, which should bring some refreshment, is long and suffering. And my days are short. If there's sunlight, if there's something good, if there, my friends are gathered here, um, even if their presence is available, it goes quickly. So it is both long and short, terrible and, and short. And that, that, that is his harsh life and how short that that is. Well, the, the second portion of chapter 7 in his lamenting prayer is that my insignificant life should be lost. He says in verse 7, remember, and so this is, this is a command, but it's an address. It, it, it reminds us that he is praying to the Lord. And he's saying, Lord, remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. He's saying, listen, you know my life is just this vapor, and I'm not going to see good again. He assumes that that's the case, right? He's probably an older man already. And he thinks, this is the end, so remember me, right? 
And then he says, this is how I feel, that the eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. I'm going to die. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. God is watching, but I'm going to die, and I'll be gone. And then verse 9, as the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. Sheol is the grave or the place of the dead. And he says, just as like a wispy cloud may vanish, I think we should think of it more like the vapor of, you know, when we're boiling water and the steam goes up, it goes up so far and it just kind of vanishes and disappears. He's saying, that's my life. That's the book of Job, right? Reminding us that if we're caught up in our business, in our planning, and in our life, in this life, remember that our life is just a vapor. It's that same concept that vanishes. So he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. You go to the grave and that's it. Verse 10, he returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him anymore. There's no way home. I know you guys are smiling because that's the name of that Spider-Man movie, right? There's no way home. But that's a good expression. There's no way home. There is no home. Job is saying, I'm done. Like even, even if my health is restored, where am I supposed to live? My home is gone. All, all my servants and everything that I ha- is, is gone, Right? Even if you restore me at this moment, there is nothing for me. It's just my end. And that is what he's looking forward to. My life is as insignificant as breath and vapor. And when I go down to the grave, that will be the end of me. And nobody's going to remember. There's not even a home that is praying and hoping that I return to. I'm I'm over. He, he goes on to say in verse 17 to 21, my despised life, you should just forsake. In other words, why, why does God bother with human beings like me? Look at verse 17, and this, this phrase might sound familiar to you. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. What is man? Do you guys... Do you, that's a praise song, right? What is man that you should touch him with your grace? I'm not even sure if I'm saying the right lyrics, right? And who am I, O oh God, that you should know my name, right? Is that right? All right, let's just pretend it's right because it makes, makes it much better if it is right. It's words that come from Psalm 8. And what the brilliance of it is, and I don't know which came first. I'm pretty sure that this came first and maybe, maybe the psalmist twisted it. But in Psalm 8, it's, it's, Lord, why are you mindful of man and why have you exalted him? It's, it's human beings are wondrously created. They're awesome. You did a great job, Lord. It's the exaltation of humanity in Psalm 8. Who am I, O oh Lord, that you should know my name? Here, it's the exact opposite. That's the, it's the same thing upside down. Job is saying, what is a man that you even make much of him that you set your heart on him? You visit him every morning and you test him every moment. He's not saying human beings are honored, but he's saying they are aggravated. It's like big brother is watching me. He recognizes, right, that there is great limitation on his existence and the pain of his existence now feels like the Lord should just end him. What is man? He doesn't mean it like, oh man, what is man that you exalt him? He's saying, what is man that you need to judge him so 
Verse 19, how long will you not look away from me? You notice that? The psalmist is always saying, how long will it take for you to look to me? He's saying, how long will it take till you stop, you stop judging me, stop looking into me, stop staring into my life and testing me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit. He's saying, I don't even have time to swallow my spit, all right? Because I feel your eyes like big brother upon me. So verse 20 and 21. Uh, oh, 17 through 21, sorry. 17 through 21. No, no, we're on 20, yes. If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth and you shall seek me, but I shall not, I shall, I shall not be. His question is simply, Lord, why? You know, why, watcher of mankind, are you watching me that way? If I sin, right, there, there, there's a means to kind of repent of that. The means of knowing and getting things right. Why have you made me your mark? Why have you become a burden to you? Like, like if I have a transgression, you can pardon that. You can cleanse me and take away my inequity. That's been my life with you all this time. Why, why is this? And this is him kind of leaning into that same space that his friends have leaned into. That God, right, he gives tit for tat. That, that there must be something. And he's wondering, is there something, Lord? And if there is something, I can't think of it. But if there is something, then you've always given me a way out. You've always given me a sacrifice, a repentant heart, uh, a confession of soul. You've given me a ways to make things right with you, even though I'm a sinner. But there doesn't seem to be a way out. He's literally saying, Lord, end me or ease me. Just don't tease me. Do you like that? I made that. I made that up. Right? But it is that he's saying, Lord, like, like there is retribu- re- re- retributive, retributive justice that comes from the hand of the Lord. That's true, and he appeals to God to make his agony endurable by making it meaningful. Don't just leave me not understanding. I would take it if if I knew why this was. But it is. It is this feeling that, that this is happening, and I know this is from your hand, but I don't understand it. That is the thing that is killing him. And again, as we think about this, this is Job just candidly lamenting the difficulty of his existence and recognizing the depth of his suffering. But suffering is part of this broken world, not just because sin, it is because of sin, but suffering is a path that God uses to his glory to bring us to something that is more infinitely valuable than the comforts, the securities, than the delights of this world. And so that the test of suffering is the greatest means by which our faith is validated. Not in God's eyes. God already knows. God already knows Job's Job's faith. But in our own eyes, right? I, I think I trust the Lord with my entire life. But it's not until my life is on the line that that trust is validated. I'm, I'm a finite being. I, I think that I know, but I don't know everything. I'm not infinite or omniscient. 
God is. And so whatever suffering he allows, he allows because, again, we return to, to 1 Corinthians 10, right? That there is nothing that he will send us, right? That is so impossible for us to bear, but that each of us, in our unique way, God is allowed to experience the exact amount of trial and tribulation that is necessary for his glory to be revealed in our faith. There is a concept of redemptive suffering. 